Before this episode starts, I just wanted to say that the majority of the information that I got for today's episode is from the Raymond G. Miltenberger Behavior Modification Principles and Procedures textbook and the Cooper, Heron, and Heward Applied Behavior Analysis textbook. Just wanted to give credit where credit was due, and let's get into the episode. Oh wait, I'm back. One more thing, one more thing. Um, remember last episode when I apologized for the episode being wordy? just buckle up i'm sorry um this one's not much better if not worse and i'm just i i might make this more confusing i don't know i'm sorry just just buckle up anyway okay now let's get into the episode welcome to the just talks aba podcast with me i'm jess a BCBA who is still trying to navigate the big world of applied behavior analysis. Join me as I try to break down common topics of applied behavior analysis and attempt to make things make just a little bit more sense. Hey friends, in the last episode, I covered behavior, how to determine if something qualifies as behavior by using the dead man's test, and left off with explaining the differences between respondent and operant behavior. I asked what you would like me to cover next in a poll on Instagram, and respondent and operant conditioning won, and I think that's a pretty good topic to expand on. So, to review from the last episode, respondent behavior is elicited by antecedent stimuli, or in other words, something happens before that causes the respondent behavior to occur. For example, if you go to the eye doctor, they have you look into that little machine and it's a little picture of a house and then suddenly they blow a puff of air into your eyes. The air blows, so the air blows before, which is the antecedent, and you blink. You did not have to learn how to blink. You were born with this behavior already and that's an example of respondent behavior. Something happened before, it elicited the behavior. Air blows, it causes you to blink. Operant behavior, on the other hand, is learned. These behaviors are learned, shaped, and maintained by the consequences that have followed it in the past. So operant behavior or learned behaviors will look different for every person depending on their learning history. For example, if a child gets an A on a test and their parents give them $20 for getting the A, they have learned that getting good grades results in a reward and they will be more likely to try and get good grades in the future. Another example is that a person arrives to work 30 minutes late and they were scolded by their boss. In this example, the person has learned that arriving late results in punishment, which is being scolded by their boss, so they will be more likely to arrive on time in the future. Okay, now that we've caught up on where we left off last time, let's take a closer look at respondent and operant conditioning. The biggest distinction to keep in mind is that respondent deals with what happens before a behavior, while operant is concerned with what happens after a behavior. So let's get started by taking a closer look at respondent conditioning. So the unlearned or reflexive behaviors that I talked about earlier are also called unconditioned responses, or UR. An unconditioned response does not require any prior learning or conditioning to occur. In the example of the eye doctor, the blinking is the unconditioned response. I did not have to learn how to blink. It required no prior learning. Therefore, it is an unconditioned response. 
Unconditioned responses are elicited by antecedent stimuli called an unconditioned stimulus. So what this means is that the unconditioned stimulus naturally elicits the behavior. For example, the puff of air was an unconditioned stimulus in the example of the eye doctor. I didn't have to learn that the puff of uh, air that would be blown into my eyes would require me to blink. That naturally brought out the blinking behavior. No prior learning was required, therefore it is an unconditioned stimulus. So what exactly is respondent conditioning? Respondent conditioning is when you take a neutral stimulus and pair it with an unconditioned stimulus. Eventually, the neutral stimulus will elicit the same response that the unconditioned stimulus did. However, the resulting stimulus and the response have now been conditioned or taught. So respondent conditioning is also known as classical conditioning or Pavlovian conditioning. And you may be the most familiar with the example of Pavlov's dog. So let's take a look at that example and break it down even further. In this example, Pavlov used meat powder that caused his dog to salivate when it was put into his dog's mouth. Because the meat powder naturally made the dog salivate, this is our unconditioned stimulus. And because the dog did not have to learn how to salivate, this is called an unconditioned response. What Pavlov did next was pair the sound of a metronome, which is our neutral stimulus, with the meat powder. And he played the sound of the metronome when he placed the meat powder into the dog's mouth. So here we have the unconditioned stimulus, which is our meat powder, paired with a neutral stimulus, which is the metronome, and the dog continued to salivate, which was our unconditioned response. Eventually, after pairing the sound of the metronome with placing the meat powder into the dog's mouth enough times, Pavlov began to play the sound of the metronome alone, without the meat powder. And sure enough, the dog salivated at the sound of the metronome, even though there was no meat powder present. So what happened here? The neutral stimulus, which was our metronome, was paired with an unconditioned stimulus, which was the meat powder which elicited an unconditioned response, which is salivation. When the meat powder, which is our unconditioned stimulus, was removed, the metronome, which was our neutral stimulus, still elicited the salivation, meaning the metronome is now a conditioned stimulus and the salivation following the sound of the metronome is now a conditioned response, meaning both of the, the stimulus and the response were conditioned or learned or taught. Let's look at the example I gave of the eye doctor's visit. And let's just say for the sake of this example, I've never been to the eye doctor before. So in this example, the unconditioned stimulus is the puff of air that goes into my eyes. The unconditioned response in that example is my blinking. So I did not have to learn how to blink in response to a puff of air in my eyes. That's something that I've been born with. It's an unconditioned response. The neutral stimulus is the little machine that looks like binoculars that you look into. I had to Google it. It's called a tonometer. So the neutral stimulus is the tonometer because I have never seen one of these machines before. I have zero learning history with it. It's a completely neutral stimulus to me. However, because when I look into the machine, into the tonometer, it blows a puff of air into my eyes, the tonometer is now paired with an unconditioned stimulus, which is the puff of air. 
If I were to go to the eye doctor or look into the tonometer a few more times and the tonometer administered a puff of air causing me to blink, in the future, when I look into the tonometer, I'll likely start to blink even if there's no puff of air. Now, the previously neutral stimulus, which was the tonometer, is a conditioned stimulus. And my blinking in the presence of the tonometer, even with the absence of air, is the conditioned response. So in review, respondent conditioning is also known as Pavlovian conditioning or classical conditioning. Ivan Pavlov was the first person to demonstrate respondent conditioning. And in respondent conditioning, an unconditioned stimulus is paired with a neutral stimulus, and through pairing these two together, the neutral stimulus then elicits the same response as the unconditioned stimulus. So the previously neutral stimulus is now called a conditioned stimulus, and the response that it elicits is now called a conditioned response. While respondent behaviors are elicited by antecedent stimuli, operant behaviors are controlled by their consequences. And that brings us to operant conditioning. But before I move any further, I wanted to make the distinction between the terms elicit and evoke because that's something that I've caught myself saying without much explanation in the past. So when we say that respondent behaviors are elicited by antecedent stimuli, that means that an unconditioned stimulus elicits an unconditioned reflex or an unconditioned behavior. A conditioned stimulus through respondent conditioning also elicits a conditioned response because the conditioned stimulus was once paired with an unconditioned stimulus. Can I say conditioned and unconditioned and stimulus enough? Essentially what this means is that an unconditioned stimulus like that puff of air in my example of the eye doctor will elicit, you know, an unlearned reflexive behavior like my blinking, but so will pairing that unconditioned stimulus like the puff of air with the tonometer. Now the tonometer is going to elicit the same behavior that the puff of air did. So that conditioned stimulus, which is a tonometer, is now going to elicit the same behavior the blinking, but now it is a conditioned response. Okay, so anything to do with respondent behaviors or respondent conditioning is elicited, but operant behavior is evoked. So a discriminative stimulus evokes operant behavior because the behavior has been reinforced in the presence of the SD in the past or the discriminative, the discriminative, the discriminative stimulus in the past. Operant conditioning is a process where the consequences following a behavior results in an increased or decreased frequency of the same behavior in the future. The increase of a behavior is the result of reinforcement, and the decrease of a behavior is the result of punishment. So in the description I just provided, the consequences affect the future behavior and the future frequency or likelihood of a behavior. And for operant conditioning to occur, the person does not have to be aware that it's happening. And this actually made me think of an episode from The Big Bang Theory when Sheldon was giving Penny chocolates following behaviors like taking his dishes, not sitting in his spot, staying quiet, taking her phone calls in the hallway. So in this example, Penny's behaviors were immediately followed by being offered a chocolate from Sheldon, and this would be positive reinforcement. 
And you could see that throughout the episode that Penny actually was more likely to stay out of Sheldon's chair or stay quiet um, or take her phone calls in the hallway in the future as a result of getting those chocolates from Sheldon. But to really get into operant conditioning, I'll also have to review a lot of the differences between reinforcement and punishment and positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement and all that stuff. And I think that I've rambled on long enough in this episode, so I'm going to save that for next time. And just to review, if everything that I just said was a mess of words and you've left this episode thinking, what the heck, I'm more confused than I was coming into it. Just remember that respondent conditioning has to do with pairing a neutral stimulus with an unconditioned stimulus, and it has to do with respondent behavior. So you're pairing something before the behavior happens, and operant conditioning has to do with the consequences that follow a behavior. So respondent conditioning or respondent behavior has to do with happens with what happens before the behavior, and operant conditioning has to do what happens with what oh my wow I can't talk operant conditioning has to do with what happens after the behavior as always thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Jess Talks ABA podcast you can find me on Instagram at Jess Talks ABA that's Jess.Talks.ABA If you like this episode, please leave a like or share with a friend. I would be so, so grateful. Take care and I will see you in the next episode. Side note here at the end, there was a lot of background noise in this episode. I apologize. Um, My cat's been in my lap the whole time and she's been chewing on everything and whacking her tail on everything, but... Um, you know, love her, can't move her, and here's a little bit of her purring. She's so cute. How can you be mad at that? So cute. All right, catch you guys in the next episode.